When someone says something out of line, uh, particularly if someone says something out of line to a higher authority, a well-known response is, who do you think you are? Puts them back in their place and reminds them that they are not actually anyone special, but someone who has no more or perhaps even less say in the state of affairs than you might. They should mind their words and thoughts about themselves because they grew too sure of themselves. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 6-13 to in particular, Paul essentially did just that. In chapter 1, we've seen, so if we could catch up to where we are in chapter 1, he addressed divisions in the congregation which are unfitting for a Christian church that should be characterized by unity. And the thing was, the Corinthians formed these divisions because they developed preferences for specific teachers. And some tried to align themselves with the teacher whom they thought most prestigious out of the lot. In response, Paul argued how Christianity is supposed to be, emphasizing in chapter 2 how every aspect of Christianity appears lowly to the world as we focus on the cross and emphasized in chapter 3 how ministry was to take its direction in goals and in methods from the scriptures which which entirely undermined the the corinthians preference for worldly rhetoric growing out of the greek philosophers in their culture. And so then we come to chapter 4. And Paul shifted attention back to the Corinthians themselves, indicating in verses 1 to 5 how their opinion of him mattered little since he had to be found faithful to Christ. And now, in verses 6 to 13, Paul informed them more specifically why their opinion of him mattered so little as he pursued faithfulness as Christ's servant. Indeed, the Corinthians had come to think too highly of themselves and needed to be brought low. Paul had been somewhat gentle thus far with them, explaining mainly from his perspective why he and his fellow minister Apollos were not in competition but both responsible to be found faithful laborers at the last day according to what Christ had ordered his ministers to do. Starting in verse 6, he clarified that this is actually not just about how he and Apollos thought about their job, but about how the Corinthians had misstepped altogether in thinking that they were even informed enough about the issues to venture their opinion about Paul and his colleagues. So the main point is we should not be proud because the Christian life is not one of earthly glory. We should not be proud because the Christian life is not one of earthly glory. It is a life, in fact, before the cross. We're going to think about this in three points. The goal, the grounds, and the gospel. So, 
Let's first think about the goal. And this point looks at, so here's what we're doing. We're looking at what Paul wanted to achieve in writing this passage. What did he want to do? And again, Paul's previous discussion has been about how the Corinthians should not set their ministers against one another because every minister is in the same task together and required to be faithful to the methods that Jesus established, revealing them in his word for furthering the gospel. And now, Paul turned his point more specifically against the Corinthians themselves. They had developed some pride by linking themselves to elite teachers. But here's the issue as we find out here. They had also developed some pride in themselves. Not just in the teacher to whom they linked themselves, but in themselves per se. So let's look at verse 6. I've applied all things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor one against another. So here in that bit, Paul laid all his cards on the table, so to speak, telling them that if they have understood his point so far, as expressed about how he and Apollos must submit to God's word, then actually they need to know that the same point comes to bear upon them as well. Just as Paul banged on about how ministers must submit to God's word and how they approach the task of ministry, so too Christians in the pews should learn from that practice for ministry what they need to learn, that they need to learn not to go beyond what is written as they walk with God in life. Now, okay, so if we, if we turn to this phrase, uh, beyond what is written, for some reason there's, there's debate about what it means. So part of that is because in Greek it's a really awkward construction. Uh, and so it's not totally conceptually clear. But the ESV translates it as as well as, as we can get, sort of smoothing that out and giving the idea to us. But then people question what these things that are written are. But I think, probably as, as most typical readers will assume, this, this is a reference to Scripture generally. We, we distill the enduring principles that still bind the church's worship from the old covenant. Now, now, I've said we distill the enduring principles for church's worship from the old covenant and we take our explicit steer from the injunctions in the new covenant scripture. Now, I, I want to pause and I want to try to apply this in maybe in unexpected way by talking about uh, how even in a positive sense we are we are still taught trained in all areas of life not to go beyond what is written by the methods deployed in corporate ministry corporate worship here's what i mean okay so let me explain that the scripture directly regulates 
directly regulates the ways that we render faithful worship to God in our services. So, we should only do things that God commands in His Scripture for us to do. But in addition to showing us what kind of... So, in in addition to showing us what kind of worship is pleasing to God, a further entailment of Scripture directing us in specific patterns of worship is to train us all in the proper motions of the Christian life. So have you noticed, as we gather here to worship Sunday by Sunday, that every section of our worship service pivots our response in praying and singing around God's Word? Have you noticed that before? It is on purpose. So we begin with a scriptural call to worship that summons us to praise God. And so we sing and we pray. We we read God's word again and respond in praying to confess our sins and plead for our needs. And then we sing again and we read scripture again, having repented in prayer and now to be directed to the gospel as it's preached. And that pattern, which is taken from Scripture, is not arbitrary just to the Lord's Day, but should train our spiritual reflexes through this compressed hour, so to speak, that, that the movement of the whole Christian life should move from adoration to repentance to gospel rejoicing. So th- there's a reason. Yeah, I'm going to give away a trade secret right here. So this might be exciting and it might not. <laughs> there's a reason almost all of my sermons have three points. And it's because I want to teach the truth, convict sin, and take us back to the gospel. It's the same pattern of adoration, repentance, and gospel trust. And so the hope is that we would learn better how to be faithful to what is written in all areas of life by following most explicitly this pattern during the time we gather under God's promised means of grace. And so here's the thing. Paul's goal was to move the Corinthians away from arrogance by pointing to the, to the nature of ministry that submits to God's Word in all things, to learn the patterns of our life. And if we are adoring God, if we are repenting and actually trusting the Gospel, well, that should short-circuit arrogance. That brings us to our second point, the grounds. So we we looked at uh, at how... Uh, ministers who actually do follow the scriptures by rejecting the ways of the world in favor of a straightforward gospel proclamation. Paul wasn't a fan of that. That we shouldn't prioritize worldly rhetoric instead of the things scripture commands. We have to submit to that. And this point examines the reasons, the grounds, why Paul had to promote the goal of undermining arrogance. And so we see the reason stated through a rhetorical question in verse 7 and then hashed out in verses 8 to 13. So let's read verse 7 though. For who sees anything different in you? 
What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So verse 7 begins that little word for, and you know what I'm going to say, because here it means because. And so this verse is the reason that the Corinthians should not be puffed up, arrogant against one another. The reason is, leading right into this question, the reason is, who sees anything different in you? We could rephrase this, right? Bring it up to date modern language. Who said you're so special? What amazing person told you that you're amazing? Might seem obvious to us millennia later that the Corinthians overstepped their position by criticizing the apostolic team on their own standards rather than on God's. But what about when we look around our world today everywhere? So what's the most obvious example of this, right? So Facebook, which should be a blessing to help people keep in touch around the world. And it's actually a plague for the modern human psyche. So here's the example I want to use, though. So I'm in several groups on this Facebook, supposedly for discussing theology, which at first seems like an exciting thing to join. People from all over the world talking about God's Word, and this is a way to connect with other people interested in hashing out theological details, right? And, okay, so I haven't quit these groups, but I should, because I hate almost everything they say. Uh, and I hate that, that's not, yeah, that's not mean, I hate them because... Uh, not the people, but the, most of the discussions are about people posting, I'm reading this book, and here's why the author is stupid, and how amazing my thoughts are about this book. And every time I see that, I, I just want to ask, have you noticed how the author's thoughts are in print, and yours are on Facebook? And that's because people care about what this author thinks. And you had to find a place to put your thoughts online because nobody asked for them or thought they were worth publishing. So we have these Facebook commentators on all areas of life, but they're just one symptom of the broader culture that tends to think that we ourselves are really special. Somebody has to care about my thoughts. They're mine. (laughs) I thought this might stir somebody up. But this is why Paul wrote in verses 8 to 13 a rebuke to those who had already thought they had arrived. And that's what this section is. Let me... Read that. Let's look at it together, the whole thing. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich without us. So he's saying right there, so he says without us, he's saying you have all, you think you have all this stuff and you've arrived and we the apostles don't. So you've arrived without the rest of God's people, without us. You've become kings. And would that you did reign. 
So that we might share the rule with you, Paul assuming that Christians inherit the blessings of God's kingdom when Christ returns together. I wish you were in rule. I wish you were the people reigning because then I would be too. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are, this is a powerful section through the rest of here. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do wonder how often we ourselves might fall into the trap of my Facebook friends. Whether perhaps on social media, maybe that's where it happens for you. Or maybe for you it's in conversation. Or even just in our own minds. The Corinthians thought they'd arrived already, hadn't they? And so do we think that our ideas are most special? Of all things, people should hear what I have to say. Do we think that we need to be heard? What's really good for you is to hear me. Do we think that we are so brilliant that we are beyond disagreement? Shouldn't it be obvious why you should side with me? But Paul noted for the Corinthians how their supposed prestige contrasted with what life was like for the apostles. Paul, and I think he was being sarcastic here, knew that it was not that some Christians experienced God's kingdom and fullness on earth without the rest of us. He said these things with the goal... That the readers would not be arrogant. They needed to abandon their theology of glory. We've arrived. We have prestige and honor for a theology of the cross. Namely, the Christian life is humble. Lived and depends on Christ rather than the world's limelight. The grounds. The reasons. Why... Paul had to address Corinthian arrogance was because they forgot. Because they forgot. And because we so easily forget. That we do not yet have the kingdom in every way. But we must endure much of this world in faith. And that brings us to our third point. The gospel. So the the first point looked at how Paul summoned the Corinthians not to be puffed up, not to be arrogant. And then the second examined the reason for his implicit rebuke was that they had thought themselves special without reason and needed to see that they were not better than 
the apostles who taught them. They had, in fact, received all the things that they knew. And this point thinks about how this passage invites us to consider our salvation. So it would be easy to think that Paul was a bit negative here, especially in verses 8 to 13, which culminates in this claim that the apostles were the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. I mean, I I think this is where we get the phrase scum of the earth. It was an extreme statement. Remains so, but Paul was making the point that we have to be willing to express our lowliness in real, in harsh, in tough language because we are sinners. The apostles' expression of lowliness should make us doubt that we are so special, quit seeking the theology of glory, and remind us to pursue the theology of the cross. So if I could link this, and take a risk, sort of. If I could link this into our recent series on repentance. So maybe some people took the, the, the rigidity that I outlined for just outright admitting your faults and going the next step beyond that to be a little bit too intense. But don't we see Paul do that just here? He felt no need to back down from saying how awful he was and even stated in the most extreme form because he knew he was a sinner. And moreover, if we think about that, so the apostles, so Paul precisely here, willing to humiliate himself in the words he says. Moreover, it's obvious, isn't it, that shouldn't we think about our Savior himself? Who was the one man who never sinned and never deserved anything except glory. And yet the Savior who deserved glory endured all suffering and shame to save his people. His first bed was a feed trough for farm animals. He grew up with people thinking, people thinking that he was conceived out of wedlock. And he bore the curse of the law in each aspect of his humiliation, culminating in his death on the cross. Philippians 2, 6-11, right? Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
And to every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And is it not striking that Paul opened that with have this mind among you that's in Christ? If our Savior who deserved glory found no favor with the world, we should likely not expect to find the world's favor. We should expect the world to think that God's appointed message and methods are unfashionable, to say the least. But we work according to the theology of the cross, not of glory. It's not reputable to trust in a crucified carpenter to rescue you from sin. But even though and this is the beautiful thing, right? Even though trusting in Jesus Christ does not ensure favor for you with the world, it ensures favor for you with God. Which is indeed the heart of the gospel. The Corinthians had forgotten that. But we, we should treasure it. Whether you need to do this for the first time tonight or the hundredth or the millionth time, we need to flee to the gospel. When we cling to Christ, He grants us all the privileges that belong to the heirs of His kingdom. He makes us His family. What an amazing thing to consider. He makes us His own. By His shame, God's Son won our freedom. We may live as unglorified people in, in this world, in the world's eyes, but the gospel of the cross makes us heirs of the kingdom of heaven. We may seem odd to the world because of Christ, but Christ makes us treasured with God. Let's pray. Father God, we do know that it is an easy thing for the fallen human race to think ourselves wonderful, to get puffed up, and even in the church. And God, we cry out now that we hate our pride. We so deeply long not to be arrogant, but we know we are. And so we beg your forgiveness. But we know we'll receive it when we come to you in Jesus, which is a beautiful thing. And we know you will grant us your spirit by faith that we might put to death the old man. And so we pray that you would root us in deep assurance that despite our flaws and failures, we have favor with you because of Jesus Christ, all his magnificent work. But help us not to be overwhelmed, for we shouldn't be despite our flaws and failures, because as you send us back into the world, you send us not alone, but with a helper who will remind us of the things that Christ has said, the things that Christ has done, and will help us grow in holiness. Not to earn your favor, but because we have it. And we pray that that would fill our hearts with joy and delight, hatred of our sin, but because we worship our Savior, the wonderful Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.